This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Groundhog Day on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, and it's on the rare side of Groundhog Days. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Laura, you're just aching to talk about the groundhog. I think it's really cute how excited reporter Molly Walsh was about covering this. She's It's like a dream of hers to cover Groundhog Day, so she got to do it. She stayed out all night long in Punxsutawney because this is not just a get up early and go see what Punxsutawney Phil is saying. This is an all-night festival at Gobbler's Knob where they walk from town and they have the guys in the top hats. And yes, the the groundhog, let, let me get this right. It's going to be in early spring, which means the groundhog did not see a shadow. I think that's the 19th time that's happened since the 1880s, at least in the recording. So this is pretty rare. Buckeye Chuck has the same prognostication. So good for them. People are excited. I have to say that my first journalism full-time real job was in Woodstock, Illinois, where Groundhog Day movie was filmed. And so I feel like a special connection <laughs> to this weird holiday. Wait, Laura, were you saying that Buckeye Chuck is sick? You mentioned that before and that he did. No, Chris said that. I don't know. I thought I read something oh, okay. about that. We, we didn't cover Buckeye I like Chuck. how he mailed we it did. in, though. He, he he just aggregated the information from his, his cohorts <laughs> across the country. And there said, is yeah, a what he said. <laughs> Buckeye Chuck is really apparently a Cleveland groundhog named Murray who lives at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, but he had the same prognostication. So, you know, 100% correct. It's going to be totally right because we've got two rodents who live in the ground who tell us that we're going to have spring soon. When I, I really feel like we haven't had a lot of winter yet. Yeah, all I've got to say is if they that thing would have seen its shadow after the January had with no sunshine, somebody should have had a shotgun ready because there's no <laughs> way it was going to see its shadow. I, I posted a meme on Facebook this morning. It said, Phil says two more weeks of Taylor. <laughs> 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 okay, let's go to the news. Can there be a stranger bill than this in 2024? How is a single piece of legislation able to help both parents in need of childcare aid and East Palestine residents coping with the train crash from a year ago? What a mix, Lisa. It is. Yeah, the U.S. House approved what's called the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Bill, 357 to 70. The entire Ohio delegation voted yes, except for uh, Warren Davidson, the Republican from Miami County. He says he didn't like, among other things, that the bill couldn't be amended on the House floor. It's going to go to the Senate. Pretty soon, Senator J.D. Vance says he hasn't decided how he's going to vote, but he's glad it will help East Palestine residents and expands the tax credit for children. So East Palestine residents, there's a proviso in this bill that says that East Palestine residents will not pay taxes on disaster relief money that they've received. And so it seems 
kind of weird that it's, it's like a non sequitur, but it's part of this bill. So the child tax credit, we've talked about it before. It will increase currently from $1,600 per child to $1,800 to $1,900 in the 2024 tax year and $2,000 by the year 2025 with adjustments for inflation. Senator Sherrod Brown, of course, is voting yes. He says that he will help it will help 575 Ohio kids. He says the business provisions in the bill will help developers build affordable housing, 200,000 units via low-income housing tax credits, and to help Ohio manufacturers fund research and development costs. But yeah, just this weird little thing that's helping out East Palestine. All right. Now, I'm presuming, because they passed this law, that normally people do have to pay taxes on disaster relief. And now I imagine because of this precedent being set forevermore, anybody who gets disaster relief is going to say, hey, why do I have to pay taxes on it if East Palestine didn't? I wonder if we've just set a pretty serious precedent for disasters in America. That would be interesting. I do know that Norfolk Southern has coughed up at least $100 million in counting to East Palestine and its residents and the cleanup process. So, yeah, I agree. I think, and, you know, there's going to be a parade. The anniversary of the wreck is tomorrow. President Joe Biden is going to show up for the first time. J.D. Vance, I think, is already there. So (laughs) there's going to be a parade of people to East Palestine. Yes, there is. We'll be talking about East Palestine all weekend. We got more stories coming on it. It was a major entry into the American conversation after all that fire occurred. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, why is one of the nation's top high school basketball players barred from playing any more games this season in Northeast Ohio, including the playoffs? This story is about T.J. Crumble. He's one of the nation's top 2026 basketball prospects. He's a six six foot eight power forward. He's the 20th ranked sophomore in the nation. Well, his family moved from Moreland Hills to Richmond Heights at the start of the school year, and he transferred from Lutheran East High School to Richmond Heights High School, which has a top-ranked basketball program. The problem here is that the Ohio High School Athletic Association's bylaws require student athletes to miss the second half of the season and any postseason tournaments in the year in which the athlete switches schools. So the association challenged TJ's move and his ability to play right through it. In fact, the association even suggested in court filings that the family faked putting their giant Moreland Hills home up for sale and moving to this very modest Richmond Heights home just to make TJ eligible to to play for, for that school. The Crumbles took offense to that, and they argued that the move to Richmond Heights required TJ to switch schools, which would have qualified him for an exception to the association's bylaw requirement. But Common Pleas Judge Sherry Midday used the Crumbles' own words against them, really, when, when she ruled this week that this wasn't, in fact, the case. She cited Crumbles' mother's testimony in a January 17th hearing. She said the family still planned on TJ attending Lutheran East when they moved to Richmond Heights, and it wasn't until weeks later after the move that the family decided TJ would switch schools. So we were still very much up in the air and kind of up to, up to them. And Midday also noted that Lutheran East is a private school. It doesn't have any geographical boundaries. And that the family's new house was closer, in fact, to Lutheran East than to its former home and in, in their former home in Moreland Hills. So he very well could have stayed at Lutheran East and that this was uh, a choice. So unfortunately, he's uh, he's barred from playing. 
Yeah, you, f- you feel bad for any kid that is in this kind of controversy. Although when you read all of the conditions of this, it does seem awfully fishy. And the rules matter. And, and it looks like everybody involved in this looked at the situation, looked at the rules and said, you can't do that. You can't, you can't get around the rules this way. Uh, and I think it looks to me from reading the whole thing that everybody did the right thing. Yeah. I mean, Midday was was very sympathetic about the fact that banning TJ Crumble from playing in the postseason could harm his athletic career and prevent him from taking advantage of scholarship opportunities and relationships with recruiters who would be scouting around during the postseason and things like that. But as she pointed out, she's bound by the rule of law in this case. It really well, wasn't another they, way to go. Look, they pointed out that, that that a relative had moved into the house, right? That they were purportedly selling for two and a half million dollars while they moved into a house that cost a tenth of that, right? Yeah. In Richmond Heights. And when the Ohio High School Association went there, they took a picture. It was a cot in a bedroom. It did not look like a permanent kind of residence. And, and that probably played into a lot of these decisions. It's just a shame for him because it will probably hurt his prospects. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A year after I arrived in Cleveland, the 216 area code was running out of numbers and a new area code was created for Lake County and elsewhere. That was the 440 area code. Laura, can it really be true that that area code is at full capacity already? It will be by the end of the year. That's the projection. And that was created in 1997. So it's been, I mean, <laughs> it wasn't just yesterday, but you're right. Filled up fast with everybody getting cell phone numbers. So starting March 1st, anyone who would have received a 440 area code with a new line now gets a phone number that starts 436. It's an overlay. So it's still the same area that 440 had, which was different than the the last switch off where they kept 216 in Cuyahoga County and the inner ring suburbs and did 440 for the bigger ones. So this 436 is going to cover all of Lake, Lorraine, Geauga, and Ashtabula counties, parts of Cuyahoga, Erie, Huron, and Trumbull counties. So you'll be able to know who's a newbie just by their phone number. What's interesting about area codes is that they, they're part of your identity. And so mm-hmm. people, and because of cell phones, because you can port your number, as people move about the country, it becomes a badge of honor. If you're from San Francisco, you got a 415 and people know that. If you're from Philadelphia, it's 215. So that area code has become part of the identity. I remember when the Cavs were making their run, everything was about the 216. Um, I wonder how this goes over with people. Are they going to be greatly disappointed they can't be 440? I don't know if 440 has the same ring as 216 because that's the city number, but you're right. I wrote in, in our newsletter this morning that you know that 216 is, is it's just like CLE, the airport code, right? Like that's why we call it that. It's it's part of the identity. And 330 is Akron. And if you Google that, there are radio stations that have the area code. There are boutiques and restaurants and all sorts of places name themselves after these area codes. I don't see that happening with the 436 because you'll be like, wait, what? But these do happen. Um, Columbus is not just a 614 area code. There's also a 380 and 216 eventually will exhaust its phone numbers. They think it'll be 2042. So we'll have to get a new one then too. It's just, it's an interesting one that it's become so wrapped up in who people are. It's a, it's a big story. It's going to affect a great number of people in Northeast Ohio. 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. Here's good news for anyone who hopes to avoid six more months of Bernie Moreno's nonstop advertising telling us, hey, he's endorsed by Donald Trump. Which of Ohio's three Republican Senate candidates has the biggest campaign war chest, Lisa? It is Matt Dolan, but it's not really helping him in the polls. So these are figures from the campaign finance campaign finance disclosures through December 31st. At the top of the fundraising list is Matt Dolan. He has nearly $7 million in cash on hand. About $357,000 of that was raised by Dolan himself. $2 million came from the Buckeye Leadership Fund PAC, and that money was from his parents, Larry and Eva Dolan, the owners of the Guardians. He will outspend his opponents probably in the run-up to the March 19th primary on TV ads. In second place is Frank LaRose with three points. 9 million, but the lion's share of that, 3.1 million came from the Ohio Leadership Fund Pack, and 3 million of that amount is from GOP mega donor Richard Uline of Illinois, who uh, got involved in our issue one uh, in August, that issue one ballot initiative. And in third place, Bernie Marino, $2.3 million. That includes about $335,000 from the Buckeye Values Pack. He doesn't have a lot of cash on hand, but the December endorsement by Donald Trump has really helped him in the polls. There was an independent poll from Emerson College that was released yesterday. It shows Moreno and LaRose in a statistical dead heat. Moreno Reno with 22%, LaRosa 21%, and Dolan trailing at 15%. Well, let's hope Dolan's advertising helps him because there's just no comparison between these candidates. Two are cartoonish buffoons and one has substance in his background. It's amazing to me that the Republican primary will bubble up somebody like a LaRosa Moreno who have no real substance to them. And the incumbent, Sherrod Brown, has far outraised all three of them. He's almost made as much as they did all together. He's raised, well, he has $14.6 million on hand right now. He raised over $6.5 million in the fourth quarter of last year. Yeah, it's because a lot of people are afraid that we could end up with a Moreno or a LaRose, which would not be good for Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We heard a lot of buzz a while back when a house in hoity-toity Brattanaw was raided by the cops without any explanation. People were all wondering what was going on. Now we know, Layla, and it's one hell of a story. You get to tell it. It really is. This is a crazy tale. And it begins with these two Cleveland brothers, Zubayir Mehmed Abdur Razak al-Zubayir and his brother Muzammil Muhammad al-Zubayir. They were indicted Thursday in federal court in Cleveland with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and money laundering and theft of government funds. Zubayir al-Zubayir was also charged with harboring a fugitive, some accused drug dealer he's accused of hiding from authorities. The prosecutors say that these brothers posed as members of the United Arab Emirates royal family while conning investors out of millions of dollars in a whole bunch of schemes, including a $9 million cryptocurrency scheme. 
these guys were telling people they were wealthy, sophisticated investors who had widespread connections to politicians and foreign governments. One of them told people he married a United Arab Emirates princess, and he often signed his correspondences with His Excellency, <laughs> which, which coincidentally, isn't that how you sign your emails, Chris? <laughs> Never, not once. <laughs> Kidding. Yeah. But all of that really helped lure investors, including a, a former cryptocurrency miner from China who was looking for work elsewhere after the country banned the practice uh, there. And Muzammil al-Zubayir told people he was an experienced hedge fund manager. He wasn't registered with any regulating agencies, and his only education on, on the financial issues came from watching YouTube videos, the prosecutor said. So they ripped off investors and used the money and luxury cars, private jets, you know, three dozen expensive watches, Rolexes, an arsenal of more than 80 guns that the authorities later seized. They spent $4,000 for a high-end hotel room in Cleveland, $83,000 for a suite at a Browns game. I'm, I'm astounded that you can spend that much on a suite at a Browns game. <laughs> <laughs> and $15,000 for surveillance equipment at their rented home. And they persuaded all these people, including romantic partners, to invest in their fake company, Dubai Bridge Investments, LLC. They'd spend the money and then send back a small portion telling that investor that that was their return on the investment. They claimed to be in the restaurant business for a while to obtain a small business administration loan that was given out to help struggling businesses during the pandemic. And they told a Chinese cryptocurrency miner that they owned Neela Park, the massive former GE plant in East Cleveland, and that they could get cheap electric rates. So this Chinese investor paid them $3 million, and the brothers later stole more than a 1,000 miners that belonged to this Chinese business person and sold them to a Canadian company for $6 million. And prosecutors say they used then their inflated bank accounts and falsified documents to lease a building in February 2022 in Cleveland under the guise of opening a high-end restaurant. And they used the fake paperwork to rent a Bratnall mansion in this gated community off Lakeshore Boulevard. They paid for a year of rent up front there and then stopped paying. And then they trashed the house. And that was the mansion that was raided by the FBI on August 8th. Yeah, that and that was a big story. People in Bratnall were all buzzing about it. What's going on? What's going on? They actually almost tried to make the the people who were raided look like victims. And according to the indictment, they're anything but. What what always surprises me about this kind of thing is how they get away with it. I mean, they 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 convince this person from China that they're wheeler dealers in the energy industry because they have a meeting at Neela Park. And anybody that would look up Neela Park would realize that, you know, that's not what it was. It, it doesn't really stand for the energy industry like it once did. And I guess yeah, people just don't do the research, but it's an awful lot of money to part with based on just complete right. bogacity. Well, and the story mentioned that that deal was inked while they were inside East Cleveland City Hall with Neela Park as the backdrop. So this, I'm assuming this was some sort of Zoom call where they were discussing this deal. How, how, how does East Cleveland City Hall end up part of this? How did they gain access to it in order to, to drag them into this, this scheme and, and help create the illusion of credibility to this? There's so much here. It's such a fascinating story. How long did they do this? And what were they doing before this? What were these guys up to before they came up with all this stuff? 
And how did it go undetected for so long? And what was eventually the thing that tipped him off? I'm, you know, tipped off the FBI. I'm wondering. It's um, a crazy story. Yeah, well, it might be that Chinese business person that lost all those those uh, machines and money that probably complained at some point. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's talk about another campaign funding story. Planet President Matt Huffman has the audacity to think he can run for the Ohio House next year and immediately become the House Speaker. Current Speaker Jason Stevens has other ideas. Who has more money? Jason Stevens has more money. He has the even early lead. And he's the less fringe of the two. He's a Lawrence County Republican. He has to learn on the fly for the past year because he wasn't in charge for so long. Matt Huffman's been but back and forth in the chambers. Because remember, you get term limited in the Ohio legislature. So he's been in the Senate. He's been Senate president. Now he's got to run for the House if he wants to run. And apparently his victory is foretold in the stars or maybe by a groundhog. I'm not really sure. But Huffman took about 341000 in campaign contributions between July and December, whereas Jason Stevens got about 680000 So, I mean, about double that. You'd think people in the House would take offense to this guy just saying, yeah, I'm going to run, I'm going to run for the House, and I'm going to be your leader, that some of them might feel like they are more in line for it. Plus, he's from nowhere, so it's just an odd one. But but I guess it, it could happen, but Jason Stevens is going to well, work to fight him. Of course, Jason Stevens needed Democrats to get the House speakership, yes. and that may not happen the next time around. And he's made a lot of people angry because of that when he uh, he was elected speaker with with a you know bipartisan coalition here that I mean, a lot of people have vowed not to endorse you know the Republican Party is not endorsing people who voted for Stevens because they're getting you know they're trying to get payback for um, was Derek Marin right that he was right. supposed to be king of the house and that didn't happen. So he's probably got some enemies in the house who would rather see Matt Huffman. I feel like they, you know, Marin and Huffman are probably more closely aligned. So we'll have to see what, I mean, we haven't even had the election yet. So we got a long time to wait, to wait. But um, Jimmy and D Haslam were some of the biggest contributors to Steven's campaign. They each contributed $15,500. That's the maximum limit for individual donations in Ohio. Audrey Ratner gave the maximum contribu- contribution to Jason Stevens, but her husband, Al Ratner, gave gave money to Huffman. So, yeah, there also some um, labor unions are giving money in this campaign. Okay. Well, I, the, we got that ahead. That'll be a big one for going into next year. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We noted earlier this week that nonprofit agencies in Northeast Ohio were sitting on billions of dollars rather than spend it on the causes for which the agencies were created. Let's talk today about how much money some nonprofit agencies are paying the people who lead them. But let's leave out the doctors, uh, Lisa, who are working for the hospitals, because that's kind of a separate Separate ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our crack data analyst uh, reviewed a tax document database that's maintained by ProPublica, and they found that 31 employees in Cleveland outside the medical field are making 
$500,000 and more. And they're at 16 different workplaces. Two of them have topped 1 million. So the number one is uh, Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Foundation CEO, Jehuda Reinhars. He makes 1.1 million. In second place is Case Western Reserve University Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs, Stanton Gerson. He came at just over a million. And he is one of 11 Case Western Reserve Universities on this list. So that's about one third of the list of people at Case. Number three is the president and CEO of the Rock Hall of Fame, Greg Harris, $852,000. Gina Vernacci, Playhouse Square Foundation, she made just under $850,000. She's one of three Playhouse Square Foundation employees on the list. Also on the list, uh, Cleveland Museum of Art Director William Griswold at number six. He made about $772,000. Uh, Baiju Shaw, number 22 with the Greater Cleveland Partnership. He made about $578,000 plus benefits. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland Institute of Music has been through the ringer of late and the controversy continues. Laura, why did its former principal conductor sue the Institute for $25 million this week? Defamation. This is former principal conductor Carlos Calmar seeking $25 million. He alleges defamation from a sexual harassment investigation that he was later cleared of uh, from any kind of wrongdoing. He also charged the school with retaliation, wrongful termination, and breach of contract. This just does not feel like it was handled very well from the beginning. Uh, he accused the conservatory of ruining his reputation. So they put him on leave last year amid this Title IX investigation. It was launched in April. The school's Title IX coordinator had emailed students saying she read a course evaluation and was horrified at accusations against him. So this became a big deal. The school's commencement speaker that year backed out. The students protested. But there was never a formal complaint against him. He fully cooperated with investigators, and this investigation ultimately cleared him of doing anything wrong. But it just, you know, it's like that smoke and fire thing. Students boycotted his classes, the rehearsals, the concert. The school barred him from giving students who boycotted um, any failing grades. So he ended up leaving. Um, he was placed on involuntary leave of absence, even though there wasn't any disciplinary proceedings. He was prohibited from campus. He wasn't allowed to interact with students or perform his job duties. So, yes, it just seems like a mess. Well, and there were, yeah, there were student petitions and everything else. This is one of those cases where... You'd think they would settle this out outside of public view because it's just so ugly, but mm -hmm. I guess not. So he's demanding compensation for what what they put him through. Ultimately, I suspect there'll be a settlement. We won't know what it is, and the case will be dismissed. But de depending on how far it goes, lots of ugly details could be revealed. It's not that big an institution, but, but it does seem to get an outsized share of headlines. Well, and it ta this tarnishes the entire institution, right? Because we don't know what happened, but whatever happened, it was handled really badly. Yeah, I know. And now, now it's a $25 million court battle. Oh, well, you're listening to Today in Ohio. We got a couple minutes left. You guys were supposed to get sunshine in a big way this weekend. You're getting out. You're going to enjoy it. Laura, are you going to go skiing? Yeah, I'm supposed to go to Seven Springs, actually. And, uh, it's supposed to be fully sunny there. Unfortunately, they haven't made enough snow and there's not a lot of snow there. So actually, the Boston Mills base is twice as big as the Seven Springs base. So that shows you. In Ohio, we are committed to making snow because we don't have any from Mother Nature. 
Is it supposed to be sunny over there too? Yeah, absolutely. Full blue skies. And I think here we're supposed to get four or five days of it. So yes. I hope everybody gets out and enjoys yes. it. Yes. <laughs> That's the one thing I learned when I moved back to Cleveland. It's not really the cold that gets you. It's the Cleveland crud, as Betsy Kling calls it, the days of gray. So I've learned that no matter what the weather is, if it's sunny in the winter, you get outside. Well, and yeah. Zachary Smith did a story yesterday. We had more than a month without sunshine. So it wasn't your imagination. Mm. It really was that gray for more than a month. Yeah, this was extraordinary. I cannot remember a previous January like that, but maybe it'll balance out. We'll have a wonderful February. At least the groundhog says we're going to have an early spring. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Leah. Thank you for listening. That's it for the week of news. We'll be back Monday talking again. 